Professor Jordan, thank you so much for joining us to participate in SCOTUS Blog's program on Black History Month. Tom, it's hard to turn down a subpoena from you. <laughs> uh, talk to us, if you would, perhaps from your own personal experience, about the role the Supreme Court has played in the lives of African Americans in this country. Well, I think it has played a definitive role. If you go back to Plessy versus Ferguson or the Dred Scott decisions, it was a very negative role. Plessy versus Ferguson was a, a judicial sanction of separate but equal uh, with one dissent by Justice Harlan, I believe. And so it was not until 1954 uh, with the Brown decision that we certainly in my time and in my life felt the Supreme Court was in fact uh, dramatically a friend of the black community. And was that a truly defining moment? Did, did everything change? Did some things change? Did, was there at least, was it just the sense that there could be justice, but there was a long road? Well, what, what, what 54 was, it was a clarion call. It was, it was a very definitive moment. But there have been indications of where it was going in uh, uh, Sweat versus Painter. Uh, in um, uh, Smith v. Allwright. These were all pointers, Smith v. Allwright giving blacks the right to vote in the white primaries. That was a pointer. Then there was the case, I think, in before Brown, which dealt with uh, housing, which dealt with, uh, there's a word for clauses, indeed saying that uh, uh, this property could not be sold to black people. So what, what we see as the country slowly progressed, so did the Supreme Court. If you remember Truman's uh, edict about desegregating the army came prior to the 54 decision, but everything is sort of inching up, up toward that. Now, you experienced it. You were 20 years old, I guess, at... DePauw in Indiana. How did you personally experience? Well, I won the Margaret Noble Lee extemporaneous speaking contest <laughs> in 1954 at DePauw University, essentially talking about the Brown versus Board of Education decision because uh, I was a student at DePauw University from 53 to 57 because had I chose to, I could not go to school at Georgia Tech. I could not go to school at the University of Georgia. I could not go to school at Emory University, which was in fact private. So I chose to go out of state to get uh, a good liberal arts education. And then when I applied to law school, uh, the state of Georgia was so interested in maintaining segregation that <clears throat> they had an out of state program for black kids if they wanted to go to law school, they paid the difference between what it costs to go to the University of Georgia and what it costs to go to Harvard or Howard or wherever. To send them away? Yes, sir. <clears throat> that was done for med students and for law students and for engineering students. That was an office in the state 
office buildings uh, that provided out-of-state funds in order to maintain the segregated system. <clears throat> so that when I graduated law school in 1960, chose to practice law with Donald Hollowell for $35 a week in Atlanta, I got back in June. If you were going to take the bar review course, you couldn't do it because it was segregated. You could go to John Marshall Law School and buy the notes, but you could not attend classes because it was, it was under our law then legally a segregated situation. So that the Supreme Court decision was, a, was sort of the answer to our prayers, and it was a signal. Uh, to the country that things were going to change. And it opened up many avenues. The Supreme Court decision came down in 54. Uh, <clears throat> in 55, Rosa Parks refused to get up on the bus uh, in, in Montgomery. And the movement, the civil rights movement, uh, at that very instance, became not a movement of lawyers arguing before the Supreme Court, but of actual people involvement. Uh, that, that's a very significant moment when uh, uh, Rosa Parks sat down so other black people could stand up. Now, in 54, it may have been a signal, but if the bar review was still segregated in 61, then we still had, and we still today have, but we had then still a long way to go. Yeah, what, yeah. what what took us that that next step? Well, think about what happened uh, um, in that time. This 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 chipping away. I finished Howard University Law School in 1960. Went to work as I said for Don Hollowell. Before I got to Atlanta to begin working for him. I was involved in the case that desegregated the University of Georgia, along with Horace T. Ward, who is now a senior status federal district judge who in the 40s had sued the University of Georgia uh, and was denied because of race to go to the law school. He went to Northwestern, made order of the court, came back, scored one of the highest scores on the bar exam in Georgia. Uh, told me by the Attorney General of Georgia, Eugene Cook, and, and I said, how do you know that Horace Ward had the highest score ever made on the bar exam? He said, because we keep up with you all, <laughs> meaning we keep up with black people. Uh, extraordinary. So we got the Supreme Court, which is about school. But it was, it was the blanket put over the civil rights movement that gave, that provided opportunity. When Jim Nabret taught me constitutional law, James Nabret, he was a great teacher, great lawyer, great president of Howard University. I can hear him now in the classroom in constitutional law saying, raise it, talking about the constitutional issue. 
the theory being if you don't raise it when it's ripe, you waive thereby after the right to raise it. And what he had in mind was if you raise it now, you've got a chance to get to the Supreme Court where you're likely to get a ruling in your favor that you would not get at the federal district level or at the state court level. Now, has that sense of optimism, the sense that the court is the friend of the black community and is trying to advance the cause of justice and equality, do you think that mindset that James Neighbor had in 1959, 1960 remains in that community? Has the perception of the court shifted? I think that there has been uncertainty created by the court. I think you have to keep in mind that the court, the process by which the court is named is in fact a political process. Uh, they have to be <clears throat> confirmed by the United States Senate. Um, uh, a president who makes the appointment has an outlook about how he wants the court to be. And so I don't think that this present court, for example, uh, is, is viewed as um, friend of black people or other minorities. Uh, after the Supreme Court decision the other day about political campaigns and corporations, some people might think that it is nobody's friend, except maybe big, uh, big, big corporations. I also think you have to, <clears throat> the word friend is, is not to be interpreted as the friendship that I have with you and my partners. I think friendship has to be interpreted in a way that there is a receptivity to new views and new ways of looking at things. There was a receptivity for Brown versus Board of Education turning over Plessy v. Ferguson. There was a receptivity to Smith versus Allwright. Uh, there was a receptivity to um, Sweat versus Painter, which came in 1950 when my friend Heman Marion Sweat sued the state of Texas and the education system in Texas based on the fact that the law school was was desegregated. And so if you read Sweat versus Painter, you see Brown versus Board of Education coming down the pipe. And it's been it's been a step by step uh, situation. There is uh, some dispute uh, was some dispute about the NAACP, NAACP Legal Defense Fund pursuing the legal strategy. Uh, if you think about it, when the Montgomery bus boycott reached a stalemate in terms of people saying, uh, my feet are tired, but my soul is rested, that can only last for so long. What ultimately made it victorious was the Supreme Court decision affirming uh, 
what Rosa Parks did in Montgomery. So the court has been very important in the affirmation process. Now, it is also true that if you take the Voting Rights Act of 1965, court sort of had nothing to do with that. And there is this notion that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed uh, by the Congress of the United States. The fact of the matter is that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was written on the long road from Selma to Montgomery. That's where the law was actually made. And what happened in Washington was an affirmation of what the march from Selma to Montgomery was about. And so all the Congress did was to put the whereases and the wherefores and the semicolons and the colons and the periods. But the law was actually written on the road from Selma to Montgomery, which I think proves my theory that government by its very nature is not an initiating body, but a responding body. The Congress responded to the blood, sweat, and tears shared by black people and white people on the road to Selma Montgomery. It codified the march from Selma to Montgomery. And in much the same way, the Supreme Court codified the courage of the kids in South Carolina that were a part of one of the cases and the uh, of the five cases that went up to, to underground versus board of education so the supreme court is a responding entity in many ways as is the congress to the will and the hopes and aspirations of the people thank you so much it's very kind of you to take the time